Hello and welcome to Talking to Titans, a podcast from University College London with me, Gudrun Moore, Professor of Molecular Genetics at UCL's Institute of Child Health. And me, Kathy Jean Grandy, UCL alumni, art historian and conservation scientist. Over seven episodes leading up to International Women's Day, we've been speaking to women who have pushed boundaries in their personal and professional lives. They've become leaders and role models in their respected fields and have encouraged future generations of women to follow in their footsteps. This is the last episode in this series, and it's been a real privilege to chat to women with such uniquely inspiring stories of how to overcome hurdles and hear concrete advice for roles across academia. It has definitely left a lasting impact on us, and we hope for you too. Joining us for this episode is one of the UK's most groundbreaking researchers in women's health, Leslie Regan. Hello. You've had an incredible number of roles. You were the president of the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology, the first woman to hold that role in 64 years, head of your department at Imperial College, director of the Women's Health Research Centre, secretary general of the International Federation of Gynaecology and Obstetrics, and in 2015, you were awarded an honorary doctorate at UCL. Uh, this list actually also just goes on. Firstly, women's health has historically taken up less space in medical research and other healthcare. What made you decide to specialise in this field? Well, I think it was quite simple. When I was a medical student, I had a wonderful mentor called Luba Epstein, and every year she would pick two or three students from that year and ensure they went into obstetrics and gynaecology. And so it really was a done deal. That was what I was going to do because I was one of her pixies that year. And it wasn't until much later in my career, after I'd spent a lot of time specialising in what's actually quite a small area, that I found myself thinking how much more of a contribution I could make if I was looking at women's health in its entirety as opposed to just obstetrics and gynaecology. So I've become almost a bore about how important women's health is because I really do believe that there's a famous quote, uh, the health of a nation is determined by the health of its girls and women. So women in this country number 51% of the population, but they determine the health behaviour of everybody else. Most importantly, I think, I was trained in an era where we did things to patients. You know, it was a disease intervention service. You waited for them to have a problem and then you tried to um, sort it. Whereas what I realise now that most women see healthcare professionals not because they're ill, but because they want to do normal things like uh, ensure they've got good contraception or have a pregnancy or prevent themselves from getting cervical cancer. Does it frustrate you that the field of women's health care gets so little money comparatively and also attention from the medical community? It is a bit frustrating, but I am an incurable optimist and that's the only way I could do my job. And every time I meet obstacles, I just try and think about, well, how can I overcome this one? And I'm really proud of the report that we published, the RCOG published, just at the end of my presidency, uh, in December 2019, entitled Better for Women. And this was a report looking at life course of women's health. But it was the culmination of about four or five years of me campaigning, trying to get them to understand that when we get it right for women, we save money, because that's always an important issue mm. when you're commissioning for health. And uh, I do remember 
talking to two of our secretaries of state for health and they would always say politely, oh yes, well write to me about it and I would write to them about what I thought we should do. But really nothing was rocket science, it was just common sense, let's reorganise the way we're delivering this. And then I think it was just before the... um, the five-year plan was published. One of the civil servants showed me this thing. Oh, you must be really pleased that women's health is on the map because you've always been saying that women are disproportionately disadvantaged by the funding mechanisms and, and also the, the health cuts. And I sort of took a look at this list and it said maternity and children. And I just saw read about it and I just uncharacteristically fired off. and said, you know, I think women's health is more... You know, it's no longer like the handmaiden's tale that women are there to incubate babies and drop them. Right. Women's health is about the whole life course. Maternity and being the bearer of children is just one era or one part of that life course. And I think it was just shock. And then we published this report and I'm going to spend the next couple of years, I hope, trying to get people to implement it. That's easier said than done, of course. Was it always your plan to go into academia? No, 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 no. I was, I was going to be an NHS consultant. I thought academia was for the boffins and I never used to think I was bright enough to be an academic. Why didn't you think you were bright enough? You'd gone to medical school. I don't know, because I think girls have this imposter thing, don't they? They often mm. think, you know, uh, I'm repeatedly telling my twin daughters, who are now 27, you know, please don't start the sentence with an apology. Just start the sentence. I can do. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, But I was in Cambridge and I was always seeing these women who'd miscarried, who were distraught, and they kept saying, why have I miscarried? And I went to all the textbooks, you know, there was no internet then. Mm. There was nothing there about how it's because she smokes or drinks. And then I was talking to um, a colleague there and he just said, well... If there's nothing to read about it, then you'll just have to do the research and and find out about it yourself. And I said, what, me? To which he said, yes, you. So I started. I mean, he he did help me a great deal. And then I was lucky I got an MRC fellowship to work with him and others and develop my interest in recurrent miscarriage. And uh, I sort of got my thesis and I was very pleased with that. But I still thought that I was going to become an NHS consultant. What I think I wrongly thought was a proper consultant, you know, you did clinical work. And and I'll confess, it was again serendipity. I got married and I inherited four stepchildren and um, I realised that I needed to move and to be nearer them. And so I applied for the first job that came up in London and it happened to be a senior lecturer post. And I thought, well, I'll do this for a couple of years and then I'll go back to being an NHS consultant. And I just got completely... uh, blown over, I think is the word, by the excitement of having research fellows who were becoming successful. So that was at Imperial, was it? Yeah. Yes. So I went to Imperial in 1990 and uh, my first two research fellows were incredibly successful and I'm very proud of the fact that they're both my consultant colleagues now. But I was particularly excited by the fact that I had a hand in training other people who became successful. And going to an international meeting and seeing them get applause was, I just, oh, it was just like, whew. Imperial College is notoriously male-heavy. Did it ever end up being an obstacle? I think so, but I always remember my father, who was a big influence on me, commenting one time, it was when I was quite a young, young consultant, and I said, I don't understand this really. I, I never used to be aware of all this sort of gender bit and women were sort of, you know, had to work harder and fight harder. And, and he said, oh, rubbish, he said. It was always there. He said, but you just chose to ignore it. 
And he was usually right about these things. He was an extraordinary character. He left school at the age of 12, was basically self-educated. And I just don't know where he got his vision from because he was quite determined when I was born in the middle 50s that girls would have the same educational opportunities as boys. And that wasn't common then. Did you find your school was supportive of you to go on potentially to do medicine? Well, sadly, no. They all said, well, you never get into medical school. But it was my dad who said, look, if you want to do something, then you've just got to work hard and, and do it. He says, you know, if there's one intervention in medicine that I would select, it would be education. What areas of women's health do you think are still misunderstood in the workplace? I think if you look at it as a life course, um, you know, the first thing that needs to happen is that, and I would say school is a workplace. Yes. One yes. of the surveys we did in this Better for Women report mm-hmm. of over 3,000 girls and women showed that one in five girls, when they had their first period, they didn't know what it was all about. And I, I remember using this statistic and someone saying, which country are you talking about? And I said, I'm talking about this country. Our society doesn't talk about periods. Mm. And it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because most women will have... 10 or 12 periods every year for 35 years of their life. And then, you know, the whole thing about contraception, what we're seeing in this country, in, in England, uh, in the UK, is that the unplanned pregnancy rate is about 45%. Wow. And I'm not for a moment saying that they're all unwanted, not that at all. No. But we know, for example, that if you space your pregnancies by 18 to 24 months, infant mortality falls when you have birth spacing. And it's quite dramatic figures. Mm. And then we get on to the pregnancy years. Well, many of them will, will show characteristics during that pregnancy, either mentally or physically, of problems they're going to have later in life. So why not have a really, really robust postnatal visit where all this is discussed? And then, of course, the big one that I think we're making some strides on about workplace and women's health is understanding the menopause. Often what happens is menopausal may have a sympathetic local doctor who gives them a bit of hormone replacement to get them over those horrible hot flushes, probably doesn't have an employer that understands so they mm. take time off. We, we do have to encourage research and, um, and an awareness of it. And I've spent quite a lot of time in the last few years talking to um, company boards leaders, frequently men, and when I've pointed out that, you know, what they could do is really have much better productivity in their company if they were to understand, firstly, the needs of women during their reproductive years, which we think we started to do, you know, you know, pregnancy is relatively protected now. But certainly menopausal women get a really, really bad crack of the whip. Um, and interestingly, whenever I've talked about how much more productive women would be if they were given the opportunity of flexible working or temperature control in their office or, you know, easy access to healthcare if they need to go and see a doctor... Most of those men will turn around and say, well, I had no idea. Well, of course, it makes complete sense. Mm. So it wouldn't be difficult to achieve if we got the narrative right. Jumping back in the cycle, what are your views on egg freezing? I tend to see women who've had problems getting pregnant or problems miscarrying. And by definition, they've therefore grown older. But I regularly now see women, youngish women, who say to me they want to preserve their gametes for the future. They want to get their career going. Yeah, yeah. which is, yeah. Um, I think the thing about egg freezing and fertility, modern-day fertility treatment, is it has raised expectations dramatically. 
with very little evidence to back it up, that mm. this is a good way forward. It's costly as well. Yeah, I suppose it's yeah. not much different for when IVF was being introduced. So it was, you know, it was, it was like the big, the big white hope, wasn't it? This yeah. new thing that had opened. But I come back to my point about it raised expectations and people thought, or women thought that, oh, that's fine, I can always have IVF. Not um, so easy. Not so easy. Not mm. so easy. You know, if you if you sought treatment with that sort of percentage good outcome for your broken shoulder or your or your problem kidneys, you'd think, what? This isn't you good. want me to take all these drugs and it's going to have that success yeah, rate? It's, no. it's five percent if you're forty four years old, for example, mm. which yeah. is wow. But anyway, I don't want to knock IVF because I think it's it's been the source of uh, enormous joy to many many couples and mm. a great great breakthrough in science. My reservation about all of these assisted fertility treatments is the the false expectations that are raised against a backdrop of it's a commercial venture and people are making money out of what is effectively vulnerability. How have you found a balance in your life? You've done so many things between your professional and personal life. Well, I I think my daughters are my safety valve. They are twins, identical twins. That was a challenge when I was pregnant because I was convinced that everything was going to go horribly wrong. But anyway, they were fine. They were born early. They were very healthy, but they were little and they needed a bit of help at the beginning. But um, they thrived on maternal neglect, but by which I mean <laughs> I was never around to go to the coffee mornings. Um, I might never, right. you know, and I didn't tend to drop them off at school. And Nanny did that. But I used to ring fence time with them. And I think now they're older. They're very appreciative that I've got my own life. Yeah, and they're great friends. Um, you know, I, I really count them amongst my, yeah, my closest friends. And you're a good role model for them. Yeah, I think yes. so. I think I mean, so because, you you know, somebody people often ask me, you, can women have it all? And I think I would answer, yes, they can have it all, but not necessarily all at the same time. Mm. I didn't plan what was going to happen. Things sort of happened to me. I've got this philosophy in life, opportunities don't make appointments. You either grab them or yeah. you miss them. And I don't think I've ever regretted doing something, even when it's gone wrong, but I would hate to regret the fact that I hadn't, you know, jumped over the top of a cliff or jumped into a swimming pool. What's been your biggest achievement, Leslie? When I became head of department, I think I managed it. It was the first time there'd ever been a woman head of department in the country. And I think we managed to change the ethos from asking for help is a strength, not a weakness. Because mm. I think that often is particularly a problem for women. They think if they're asking for help that they're perceived as being weaker. And I think the work recently promoting women's health as an entity as opposed mm. to just segments of super specialization i'm proud of that because it really is changing the way people look at it and i think that means that there will be better funding in the future and, and more importantly better outcomes do you have any career role models i think i've been incredibly fortunate because i have met and been looked after by lots of people when I was a junior trainee in London before I went to Cambridge, wonderful mentor who believed in me and encouraged me to reach that extra bit higher. Cambridge, I, my best clinical mentor was a man there and he still sits on my left shoulder um, in mm. the sense that it was all about doing a good job but giving 105 or 110%. And any time that anyone was tempted to take a shortcut, he was sort of tap, tap, tap. How about networking? How big a role do you think that plays in a career? Oh, I think it's invaluable. I think one of the things I've learned most in the last 10 years, certainly since I started getting interested in women's health in its entirety, is that you can travel a lot farther and a lot faster 
if you don't mind, who gets the credit along the way. Yes. And when I've been sort of, well, altruistic sounds a bit over the top, but when I sort of put people together and said, right, you go sort this out or, mm-hmm. you know, I think you can help each other, the payback is enormous in the long term. So I think that's all about networking. Mm-hmm. You may not be able to utilise this connection or this result, but something good will come out of it. So you're a facilitator in a way, aren't you? You're bringing people together and kind of... I think that's absolutely right. I think facilitating progress is something I really enjoy. I get, you know, it's it's not a sort of a headline thing or a big banner up there, but I get a a warm buzz from thinking, yes, we've got... We've we've, Yes, and we've, we've actually got over this hurdle. What advice would you give, Leslie, to a younger woman going through medicine or in higher education? I would say, and I do actually mentor quite a few younger women now. My advice is, you know, you do need to work very hard and become an expert at what is in your field Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because that way you have the self-confidence to be able to go and punch above your weight a bit. And uh, I often say when people are anxious about, oh, dear, I don't know if I can do this, Mm. we'll say to them, you know more about this subject than anybody else here. So, you know, you can do it. Yeah. I think it's finding, finding things that make you self-confident, which doesn't mean you don't carry on doubting it. There is still rarely a week that goes past when I don't think to myself, oh, God, someone's going to find me out now. I don't really know everything about this. But Do you think that will yeah, ever yeah. stop? No, I don't think it will ever stop. We whip ourselves more, I don't I see <laughs> men with this sort of self-doubt. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I think it's self-doubt. Women don't tend to put themselves forward. Mm. You know, I have to go and say, why don't you do this? Put in an application. I expect if I said to you two today, um, oh, look, this is an interesting job. Have you thought about applying for it? You'd probably come up with reasons why you're not best qualified. But that doesn't mean you can't overcome that. It's not a bad thing to be a bit self-doubting and self-questioning, mm. shall I say. But it's important that it doesn't paralyse you and stop you doing things. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that was a very interesting discussion with Leslie. Particularly, I think, what stood out for me was the whole life course and the importance for women across, you know, probably from age maybe 10, 11 through to pregnancy and then carrying on through the menopause. That kind of hormone-related life course is something men don't have the same challenges along challenges the way. Yeah. yeah at every stage you're affected in a different way and i think it's also yeah. it's perceived to be very private yeah. people don't really know what to say when a a woman in a committee room suddenly goes bright red in their neck and Starts, starts to sweat. Starts to sweat. And, and needs also to leave the room. Maybe in the past that was misread as some kind of tremendous embarrassment. And it becomes an embarrassment. I know when I was bringing up my boys, I mean, we were very, I was very, and I still am very open about all these things with them. It's, it's just the whole peer group needs to understand the differences. Thank you very much indeed for listening. This has been the last episode of this series of Talking to Titans. This series, really, we've tried to pitch it so that younger academics, young students, people in the early parts of their career can learn from useful pieces of advice. And I think for me, you know, thinking back, I would probably have liked to have heard these amazing women say, reach out for help. Yes. And try and do it on your own. Yes, I would totally agree. 
and that you're not alone because everyone, it's amazing how many people feel the same way and you're just not able to sometimes, you know, express that or, or and also, share that. We probably need to be supportive, more supportive more of each supportive. other without people having ha- to have to reach out for help. Yes. To be more aware when people, when someone's obviously clearly not yes. coping. Coping. I do think that people like Ajoma and uh, Sarah and others are working very hard to keep that on the agenda. Yeah. For more information, please go to www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash UCL dash minds forward slash titans. If you like this episode, leave us a review in your podcast app, share it with your friends and tweet at UCL with the hashtag talking to titans. The series was a Whistledown production. This podcast is in memory of Professor Maria Bittner-Glingich. UCL Minds brings together the knowledge, insights and ideas of our community through a wide range of events and activities that are open to everyone. 